We're here, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. It's good to see you all. As you can see from the screen, we'll be studying the Holy Spirit this quarter in the auditorium class. Uh, this is a uh, class that I actually taught in here about seven years ago. It's kind of hard to believe I taught that <laughs> that long ago for one. For one, it's been that long. Um, but I was going back through my materials, and uh, we were talking about what classes to teach, and this is one that I kind of was had a desire to do some study again on. And uh, I looked back, Jane, and since Jane Connor's here, uh, I was uh, looking at this lesson series, and evidently this lesson series was taught back in 2010 because of a question that Brother Gene had for me about the Godhead. So uh, we've got that. I was listening to the, the recordings from 2010 of myself, which is very strange, by the way, to listen to yourself. But uh, I mentioned that Brother Gene had wanted to study the Godhead, and so I had pulled this lesson series, and it was the first lesson. So... We'll get into that here, the study of the Holy Spirit here shortly. Before we begin this morning, are there any announcements or prayer requests that we need to let be known today? All right, let's start off with a word of prayer. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, we are incredibly thankful for another day that we can open our eyes and enjoy the world around us. God, we ask that you please be with us as we open up your word and as we study about your spirit God, we ask that we uh, have an open mind and open Bibles, open hearts to the things that you have to say to us in your word. God, we are thankful for this church. We're thankful for the congregation at Dalreda, and we're thankful for our leaders here. We ask you to please be with those elders that oversee the congregation, encourage them and lift them up. And may we do what we can to work alongside them in the kingdom here in Dalreda. We are mindful that there are so many that are among us that are sick, that are dealing with different ailments right now. And God, we ask that you to please be with them. Please reach out and, and help them be encouraged and, and obtain that peace from you. And more than anything, Lord, may they look and be faithful throughout all the, the good and the bad times. We are thankful most of all for Jesus, for his sacrifice on the cross, for our sins. And it's through his name that we pray. Amen. The study of the Holy Spirit to me is a very uh, intense study, but it's a study sometimes that evokes more questions than answers if you really get into it. And that's one thing that I like about it is it encourages me to dig deeper, to try and explore different uh, ideas and to read and study the context of different passages, scriptures. And, and, and as you look at the study of the Holy Spirit, what you're going to see is that it's really a, a very important study because of the religious world around us. And in fact, if you look around us, the religious world probably has more of problems that are, are derived or come from a, um, a misunderstanding or a misapplication of God's Word with regard to the Holy Spirit than probably many, any others of the issues. And so if you look around us, there's a lot, and you know as you, you have family or friends that are members of, of denominations that there are some people who put, place a great emphasis on the Spirit of God, and they kind of discount and disregard other things, uh, much to their fault, I'm afraid. And so what you see is the study of the Holy Spirit is very important because of the misunderstandings that there are in the religious world about this topic and this, this, uh, this person 
that we perceive and we read about in God's Word. However, really, when you look in the Scriptures, there is distinctive teachings with regard to the Holy Spirit. There are specific things which we can know about the Spirit of God uh, that we see with regard to teachings or beliefs regarding the Holy Spirit's person and His work. And as we look at the study this quarter... My hope is, is that we'll have a greater understanding with regard to who the person of the Holy Spirit is and what He does on a regular basis, not only now, but in the past as we look at, at the Scriptures. And hopefully this understanding will help undergird and encourage you and your faith as we think about those things. Uh, there's one, one quote from Z.T. Sweeney, who is a restoration preacher back from the early, uh, I guess, 1900s. I believe he died in 1928 or so. Z.T. Sweeney said, Christianity is differentiated from all other religions by the fact that it offers its followers a spiritual dynamic and living up to its precepts. That dynamic is the Holy Spirit. That sets the Word of God on fire, warms the church from coldness to enthusiasm, and strengthens the Christian with a power not his own in the great battle between the flesh and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not obtained from the deductions of logic, the conclusions of philosophy, nor from the investigations of science. It is solely and distinctly a matter of divine revelation. And hopefully that's what we're going to see as we go through this study of the Holy Spirit, as the things that were divinely revealed to us from God about His Spirit. And so we'll be able to take those principles and those teachings, that doctrine from those things, and have a greater and much larger understanding about who God is, and what His Spirit is, and what He does in our lives. And hopefully we'll be able to have this understanding as we move forward. A couple of obvious points as we uh, begin, as we think about the, the Holy Spirit. First of all, uh, we see that the Holy Spirit is treated with much superstition that has resulted in ignorance of the Bible. And as you look around us in the world, and you look around in different religions, you'll see a superstitious feeling toward the Holy Spirit. In fact... The, the name of the Holy Spirit is translated in the King James Version and several others as Holy Ghost. And because of that, this, this mystical kind of superstition surrounding ghosts somehow gets translated onto the Holy Spirit, unfortunately, as those around us. Such as it's something that we cannot understand or, or the, the Holy Spirit is, is some being that cannot be seen or... or uh, working in life. Uh, and unfortunately, this, this kind of idea of superstition surrounding the Holy Spirit uh, causes individuals to fall short of what's in the Bible about the Spirit. Secondly, you also see that the Holy Spirit's also very misunderstood. I've already underscored this at the beginning, in my introduction uh, comments with regard to this, but the, the religious world around us has a serious misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit. Some believe and they really believe that mystical emotions or feelings affect one's heart. And immediately they, they are convinced that they are being led by the Spirit. Do you ever hear that phrase in the religious world around us? That, that you are being led by the Spirit. As though this mystical being is actually directing your pathway on a day-to-day -day basis. And this misunderstanding of what the Spirit actually does, unfortunately causes a lot of problems and errors in the religious world around us. Uh, with regard to relying on this feeling versus relying on the revelation of God. 
And so you have this feeling that people are being led by. And unfortunately, it's something that's really totally embraced by some generations because they have a tendency already to lean on feelings versus logic anyways. And so you have generations of individuals who kind of fall prey to the fact that if they don't have this feeling, if they don't have this emotional, mystical kind of response, then therefore they are not being led by the Spirit and they are not going to follow that pathway or that teaching because they don't feel it in their bones, so to speak. So you have this misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit. Also, you see that the, the Holy Spirit is actually rejected by some. Uh, some discredit His existence. And they do that because they cannot see or touch or hear the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, people disregard the Holy Spirit in its entirety. And so He is no longer considered as being a valid or, or an authoritative individual. He is not regarded as being deity. He is not regarded as someone who we should uh, honor, that we should uh, listen to, that we should uh, ultimately obey with regard to the words that are conveyed by the Holy Spirit. And so people just outright reject the Spirit because they don't have this physical connection. They don't have the tangible evidence that they sometimes need in order to sometimes believe, which I think flies in the face of what faith is when you think about what faith really truly is. Hebrews 11 talks about faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so the idea there is that it requires an individual to have faith and sometimes, unfortunately, individuals don't have faith. They don't have that security. They don't have that confidence in something that they cannot see or they cannot physically hear, touch. And so they discount and they reject the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sometimes shrouded with mysticism, this aura of mysticism. He's, as I said already uh, before, he's identified as the Holy Ghost. And it conjures up, of course, images associated with this unseen world and, and these ghostly creatures and these ghostly individuals. And so this mystical kind of misunderstanding creates a, really a philosophy or a mindset that cannot be proven by scriptures because it's not there. And then it encroaches and brings upon doubt into the believer's life. And unfortunately, those people who fall prey to this, this kind of mysticism with regard to the Holy Spirit have a very false foundation in their faith. And unfortunately, that causes other things to crumble with regard to the world around them. You also see with regard to the Holy Spirit that some actually consider, by, many uh, consider it to be the panacea of spiritual matters. And of course, the panacea is the idea that it's a, an idea or a resolution or a solution for the whole. And so here you have some individuals who actually place the priority, the importance of the Holy Spirit on a much elevated plane. And so it's very opposite to the point we just talked about, about the shrouded in mysticism and it's something that you can't really see. And they kind of go to the other swing of the pendulum and the other side, and they actually say it actually is so much more important because it actually can solve all of the problems. And it, in fact, would be the solution to all the things um, with regard to spiritual matters. And this causes a disregard of the Bible itself. It, it causes a, a disregard of the Lord's church and the purpose behind it. It, it really disregards a common sense approach of understanding even God's will and looking at things because they place all the importance on the Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit leads them in this direction, then that's the direction they think they should go because they place all that priority and that importance with regard to the Spirit. They believe that they possess the Spirit, they cannot do anything wrong regardless of what Scripture states. You ever see that in the denominational world and mindset? You see that in the religious world around us? They, they have the Spirit. 
And they are emotional and they, they feel that they're connected. They have these feelings of spirituality. And it's because they feel like they have the Spirit. They possess the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, everything else is thrown out the window, right? And you see that, uh, that response in the world where they believe this is the, the panacea. That if, if you have the Holy Spirit, it is the solution for everything else. Forget about what God says in the scriptures. Forget about what God wants you to do ultimately in your life. It doesn't matter because you have the Spirit. And because you have the Spirit, therefore anything you do is okay. And that's not what the scriptures say, obviously. But that's the way, unfortunately, some people feel about the Holy Spirit. And you also see that the Holy Spirit is surrounded with conflicting uh, opinions, even among some of the Lord's brethren. Now, we're going to get into a couple of these conflicting opinions as we go through the study. But realize this, that there are some things with regard to opinion that matter, and there's some that don't with regard to conflicting opinions. Uh, one of the, the issues that we will get into in later lessons deals with what, what we call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I see Brother Kelby walked in this morning, and, and he knows the rich history with regard to the conflict, even in the Lord's church, with regard to what does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit actually mean. And you've got good opinions. You've got a firm, I believe, I've, I've read the, the debates from brethren on both sides, and they've got good arguments really both ways with regard to some things. Uh, we'll get to that issue on down the road. There are some things that may matter with regard to, the, the, to varying opinions. There are some things that don't with regard to uh, what we can stand for with regard to the Lord's church. Uh, if you deny the indwelling of the Spirit, I think we've got a problem. <laughs> you know, because the, Spirit, the, the, the Scriptures talk about the Spirit of God dwelling within Christians. I mean, I can point you out that. If you deny that fact, we may have a problem. That's not a differing of opinion. That's just being plain wrong. The other issue is, is how does the, the Spirit dwell within the Christians? may not really matter ultimately to my salvation in the end. And there may be some good, valid arguments both ways, which I would attest to you there probably are. But there are differing opinions, as you see, with regard to the Holy Spirit on many different things. Some opinions and these differing opinions are wrong when compared to Scripture. There are some opinions that, that may matter more than others. There are some difference of opinions that should not cause division within the Lord's body just because you, you tend to fall or, or think one way or the other with regard to some of these matters. But as we just begin the study of the Holy Spirit, we got to understand that just because there's varying opinions doesn't mean that God's Word varies. And there are certain principles, there are certain teachings, there are things found within God's Word we cannot dispute. We cannot fall back on that previous fact and the fact that hey, if we possess the Spirit, nothing else matters. Well, that's not what God says. And as Christians, that's hopefully not what we want. We are wanting to strive after what God has for us in His Scripture. And so what we see is that there may be some uh, differing or conflicting opinions even among the Lord's brethren. And it has even caused... Uh, those persons possibly to, to try and, and argue that you cannot comprehend the Holy Spirit, which is really not right. Uh, you can comprehend the Spirit. We may not have every question answered in our lives. And some of us, we're just going to have to deal with that. That we, we cannot, may not have a, every answer to every question in our lives uh, come, come unfurled with regard to our knowledge and be able to gain a, a true understanding with regard to things. Uh, in fact, this study, as we think about it, will not solve or will not bring about a, the conclusion of every 
uh, confusing type matter, unfortunately. I wish that I could give you a comprehensive analysis. I wish that I could uh, give you an adequate description and, and lessons underscoring every confusing matter of the Holy Spirit. But just to let you know at the outset here as we begin our class this quarter, every question will probably not be fully answered, unfortunately. I will do my best to answer the questions that we can. But I always like to fall back on a principle that's found over in Deuteronomy 29, 29. If you want to flip over there, again, I think I have underscored this in other lessons. But in Deuteronomy chapter 29, there is a principle that is found there that I believe rings true even for us today. And as you see there in verse 29 of chapter 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. And so as the principle for them in the, the Old Testament, as the Israelites uh, understood the law given by Moses in Deuteronomy, the same principle relies, I believe, to us today and it applies to our lives. That there are some secret things we may not know the answer to, but what has been revealed is sufficient for us to be able to learn and to obey and to follow and to teach and to fulfill all those other obligations that we may have as Christians in our lives so that even though we may not have the answer to every question, we may be curious. My wife, she, she wants to kill me half the time because I ask a lot of questions. I'm a very curious individual, and if I was a cat, I would be fully dead nine times over because I am curious. I like to ask questions. Hence the reason I'm a lawyer, Wayne. Uh, I like to ask questions. That's a good thing. When you're a lawyer, you get to ask all the questions you want to, except not of your wife, Melvin. Uh, we get in trouble when we do that, right? But, uh, you know, you, you think about all the questions that you might have in life, and some of them are not going to be answered in this world. I'm hoping one day at the throne of God I'll be able to ask some of the questions that are very interesting to me and that were not revealed in the Scriptures. But what we can be assured of is that the things that are important... The things that we need, the things that are necessary to our Christian lives have been revealed. And so as we work through this study, hopefully we're going to understand that those things which are knowable are going to be discussed. We're going to be able to hopefully thoroughly vet the answers given to by God and His Word with regard to our questions. And these questions which are knowable about the Holy Spirit will be revealed to us by God. The guiding rule throughout this study, though, is going to be that the Scriptures dictate all of our thoughts and our study. Only the Scriptures are able to give us information regarding the Holy Spirit, so therefore only the Scriptures are going to be discussed. Now, I will bring out different varying viewpoints and, and, and different um, you know, thoughts of individuals, possibly as we get into some of the more controversial topics. Uh, but what we want to do is always go back to God's Word and all we do. We want to make sure that we go back to God's Word with regard to it. Compare it, see what can be taught and learned from God's Word so that our lives will be edified and built up because only the Scriptures are going to be ultimately uh, considered and thought about. We need to try to eliminate any conceived bias toward our study of the Holy Spirit and His work as we begin our, our study. Bias can be positive or negative. Uh, you may have some very negative feelings about it, maybe because of past discussions or, or thoughts. That's okay, I understand that. But try to set those aside as we em embark on our study of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you, are, you have a lot of positive experience, and that's good as well. Maybe you've thoroughly studied it. Maybe you can probably get up here and teach the class, and that'd be good if you want to. Uh, obviously, pipe up and, and ask questions, and, and please comment as we're going through the study. 
But we want to try to look at this study with a fresh pair of eyes, try to make sure that we're not influenced by any other perceptions or considerations that we've had previously. We want to look at the scriptures as we move forward in the study and try and allow them to tell us what God has revealed to us in his word. And that's what the point of this study hopefully will be so that these these points, some of these misconceptions, some of these misunderstandings will not come to light and influence ultimately what we have uh, to think about in our, our study here. As we think about it, uh, as we think about this, this critical study of the Spirit, we want to consider the authority of the Spirit. We want to underscore the idea that, that the Spirit does have authority. Uh, and there is an, that's why one reason why it's important for us to, to think about this study uh, with regard to it. And if you look over in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let he who is thirsty come, and let he who wishes to take the water of life without cost. And the idea here is that the Spirit occupies a place of authority. Uh, this authority comes because the Spirit is part of the Godhead, which obviously leads us to today's class. Uh, the, the idea of the Godhead and the doctrine of the Godhead is undergirded by a lot of Scripture uh, with regard to the plurality of God. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of a deep concept in many levels. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea that God is, is one, but also God is three. And so it is a very difficult thing for my human mind to wrap my mind around that concept. And it may be for you as well. And it's one of those things which I almost just have to accept with faith and, and idea and understanding that that's what has been told to me in the Scripture. And it's hard for me to necessarily explain it on physical terms or any way that, that I can physically try to uh, make people understand. I've heard people try to explain the Godhead and, as like an egg you know, because you got the shell and you got the yolk and you got the, the white of the egg. And so you kind of have three things, but they're all the egg. And, and I think that's a, a decent comparison there. Uh, it's very interesting, I think, to um, consider that. However, when you get into the kind of scriptures as well, it's, um, you know, it gives you the distinctive nature of the three different things. They don't, both have different, uh, all three of them have different functions. Uh, they're formed, you know, a little bit differently. They have... Uh, different substance, so to speak. They have a lot of them. I mean, an egg really has, and I'm not going to get into the biology of it all. I could care less about biology, but, um, you know, the biology of an egg, you know, obviously the shell, the, the white, the yolk all have different duties. They all have different things that they can develop into. And, and so you kind of have that kind of a, a concept for it. I think that's probably one of the best concepts that I've ever heard to try and physically think and wrap my mind around the fact that God is God, but God is also the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is very interesting, and, and it gives me a headache after I think about it for a while um, because it's very difficult. And if you've ever tried to just fathom, and, and again, we're getting into much higher level thinking, and I like to stay away from higher level thinking if I have to, if I can, right, buddy? I mean, it's, just, it's one of those things that just makes your head hurt after a while. So, uh, you know, but the, the higher level thinking really challenges us as Christians to think deeper about things. And that's one thing I like about that is because it really starts making you question certain things. And we're not going to get into all the different types of discussions that this could bring about. Um, the idea, one of the I wouldn't say recent because it's been going around for hundreds of years, but can we worship or can we pray to Jesus? Uh, you know, that kind of an idea. You know, there are, there are some, I think, truly faithful and loving brethren who say that, you know, we should not be singing praises to Jesus. 
Uh, and so you have that, or we should not, uh, you know, if someone were to pray to Jesus that they might be wrong. I'm not trying to cause any kind of divisiveness at all, but the idea of them, of Jesus being part of God, being deity, is something to consider whenever you're getting into that kind of conversation. Should we pray to the Spirit? Should we sing praises to the Holy Spirit? You know, those kind of concepts always go back in my, my mind, at least, to the idea of the Godhead and to the idea that these three are three in one. And in fact, that God, being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are combined into one. And see, I see most of y'all, some of y'all's heads are already spinning here, thinking, you know, that's, that's interesting. And that's exactly what it is. It becomes a, a very higher level thought process that will translate, I think, into us taking it a little more seriously and a more serious consideration as you move into any kind of spiritual conversation about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And you think about this higher level mindset of the Trinity or the Godhead or whatever word you want to use for the Godhead. It is a concept that permeates Scripture and therefore should influence and be considered with regard to our spiritual lives. A Godhead, uh, Isaiah, well, I'll, I'll get to Isaiah in a second, but if you want to go ahead and flip over to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18, we're going to get there in a second. But you think about the doctrine of, of the Godhead, and the, the, the doctrine of the Godhead is, is really seen as, uh, in the Scriptures in a more conceptual idea and approach. However, there are some versions who actually use the word Godhead in the Scriptures. And so if you want to look, I don't know, if you have the King James Version, it's going to be three times that's going to be, that word is going to be used in the text of the New Testament referring to God. It's going to be in Acts chapter 17, verse 29, where it says, Therefore, as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And so the word Godhead is used in the King James Version there. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In the American Standard Version, only the Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 reference was the one retained. And of course, we know when you look at Colossians chapter 2, and when you look at the other verses as well, but Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 refers to the fact that Christ has the same essence uh, as the Father and the Holy Spirit. If you look at Colossians chapter 2, there in verse 9, the, the context of that passage, of course, is talking about the equality that Christ has with regard to the Father and the Spirit. Uh, with regard to that's why you have this concept of the Godhead. And so the American Standard Version, the King James Version uses that. Other versions will just use either God. Some will use the word deity. In fact, I believe the New American Standard Version and the ESV in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, use the word deity there. It's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. Uh, but the idea and concept of the Godhead is found specifically in those three verses as that was translated into English. Uh, but the concept is there with regard to the, um, the idea that, that there are three deities that are one. And again, that hurts my brain thinking about it. But that's the concept and that's what the scriptures reveal to us about the nature of who God is. And that, that God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit are all God. 
In fact, Colossians 2 verse 9, Christ has the same essence, the same kind of makeup as the Spirit and as the Father. And so you kind of see this underscoring, this, this doctrine uh, being shown in the Scriptures uh, as we do it. Now, again, again man is hard-pressed to uh, describe the relationship within the Godhead. You know, think about Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 18. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare unto him? We've got, we got to be cautious. We've got to be careful about really talking about God and what we're going to try to liken God to. And so I want, to, want you to know I'm trying to step carefully as I'm going through this because I believe this is one reason the Old Testament and some even in the New Testament struggled with the concept of God is because they wanted to create something they could see, feel, touch, that they could actually go to. And so you see idol worship obviously becoming very prominent even from very early days uh, after creation because man had this in, inherent desire to have this worship and they wanted to have this, this being or this uh, entity that they could go to and they could see and they struggled with the fact that this was the unseen and that there was an idea that God could not be grasped. He could not be touched and I think Paul kind of dealt with that mindset in Acts chapter 17 as he's up on Athens, uh, up on, uh, in Athens there up on the hill looking at all the, the idols and, and all these gods. And they got this, you know, this statue the, to the unknown God, if you remember that, that. And he talks about that God is not far away that he cannot be grasped. And you see that kind of a mindset that Paul's speaking to the Greeks there. The, the idea that, that people long to touch and to feel and to actually see who they're worshiping. And that under... I mean, that, that, that really gives the, the impression of why you have idol worship from the beginning. Why when Moses was up on the mountain, the people wanted to have this golden calf. Why? Because they thought that, that God was, was no longer with them and they wanted to have God in their midst. And it was wrong. It was corrupt. And, and it was not the truth. And so God condemns them for it, but you see somewhat the motivation behind it. It doesn't justify it. It doesn't authorize it. It doesn't say it's good, but you see the mindset and the motivation of the people wanting to have this, this God they could see and they could touch. And so here, we're hard-pressed to try and understand it. But what the Scriptures do reveal to us is that the Godhead is made and comprised of three individuals. And you see that the, the, the Godhead, the members of the Godhead are the Father, uh, which stands first and foremost, it seems in Scripture, referred to as the Creator and the Supreme, uh, and Supreme in authority. He's the Father of our spirits and is always the head of the list, it seems like, when you talk about the, the Godhead for good reason, because it seems like most passages of Scripture, when you talk about the Godhead, you talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You remember that, that kind of a... You know, in Matthew chapter 28, baptizing in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, you, you have this kind of, this, the triune begins with the Father, it seems like. So he is seen as the, the most supreme. You also see uh, different facts that, that kind of support this with regard to the fact that Christ is our mediator to the Father. And so you kind of have that concept there is that we have Christ going through us to the Father uh, with regard to scriptures. You also see the Son, of course. Being Jesus Christ, the Messiah, occupies a second place at the Godhead and the Holy Spirit. Seems to be always third. He's known by several different titles uh, and, and referred to several different individuals or, or even in scriptures you see him portrayed possibly in, in different ways. Uh, and this relationship is really seen, I think, most clearly by this triangle. 
And this triangle comes about because of a, uh, well, I think there's a missionary to the Muslim nation by the name of Robert Lowell, I believe is his name. Um, Raymond Lowell, I'm sorry. A, a missionary, and he, he kind of used this diagram. It's been used for, I think, centuries, I guess now, because it was back in 1350 when he was martyred. So, uh, I mean, it's been hundreds of years that this kind of been passed down and used, and, and you probably may have seen this before, but this kind of the idea of a triangle, and I like the triangle. Uh, it helps us understand and, and kind of diagram the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I believe. And you see this diagram, of course, is that you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're all God. And so you see this line with regard to it. But you also see that there are certain characteristics that join these individuals together in the Godhead. There are certain factors that help join them together with regard to an understanding that they are, in fact, unified. They are, in fact, one together. You see in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that the Father is God. And so there's, there's a delineation and a description there, the fact that the Father is, in fact, God, and I don't, we're going to run out of time if I read all the passages of Scripture, but look real quick, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there you have a delineation, a definition, a description of the Father being God. He is the God and Father uh, there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. You see also here that the Son is also God. Hebrews chapter 1. Real quick, flip to the Hebrews chapter 1. And you're going to see in, uh, there in verse 8 a uh, description there for us uh, with regard to Jesus being classified or being categorized as being God. And it says there in verse 8, but, the, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. An allusion, of course, a reference back to Old Testament Scripture, but speaking about the Son, speaking about Jesus Christ, he's addressed as God, as God. Christ there is God. You also see that the Spirit is God. And in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, there is a description there. We know Acts chapter 5, of course, is the chapter where Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Lord. They lied to the apostles, really. And you see there in verses 3 uh, through 4, it says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so you see here the early reference, verse 3, talks about him lying to the Holy Spirit. But in fact, you see in verse 4, the Holy Spirit is equated there, is described as being God as well. But you also see some negative things with regard to the Scripture. And the fact that even though they are unified, I would call them, call them positive characteristics with regard to uh, the Godhead. You also see somewhat what I would call negative characteristics because you see in the Scripture that there are some things that show that the Godhead is not identical. And so these passages kind of help me. This is what causes my brain to explode usually. You know, because you've got the, the things that are saying they are. And then you've got things now that they're, they're kind of differentiating and kind of saying they're, they're not necessarily identical to each other. You see in the Scripture, the Father is not the same as the Holy Spirit. 
The father specifically addressed that he was pleased with his son, so they could not be the same person. Look in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. We're getting a little logic, I understand, and, and you, you kind of look at the scriptures and, and try to see where these are coming from. But in Matthew chapter 17, most of us understand and remember the story that we see here in chapter 17. But there is a reference here after Christ. This is the transfiguration there in verse 5. It says there, while he was still speaking, and he, by the way, is Peter. While Peter was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and said, uh, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so the idea and concept here is, is that uh, the father is not the same as the son or the Holy Spirit. Actually, the son. I think I got that scripture wrong there. I keep going here. The... Uh, Son is not the same as the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples that he would send the Spirit to them from the Father, so they are not the same person. John chapter 15, verse 26. And so you'll see when Christ is speaking to his disciples, he's saying, I'm going to send the Spirit. He's not saying, I'm coming myself. Nor is he saying, I'm going to send the Father to you. He's saying, I'm sending the Spirit. And so there is a differentiation there between the ones uh, and the, the Son is not the same as the Spirit. And with regard to the Father not being the same as the Son, John chapter 14 verses 5 through 6, uh, the, the Father sent the Son. There is no access to the Father except through the Son, so they cannot be the same person. And so you think about the personhood of these three individuals, uh, they have distinctive personalities and in fact, next week's lesson is going to be talking about the personality of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be talking about his personhood and the idea that, that he is individually distinctive. He's got a personality separate from God the Father and God the Son. But we see here that the Son is not the same as the Father either because there is going to be a, a differentiation there in their duties. There is, is a difference there with regard to um, their placement because Christ is the door to, to the Father you got to come through Christ to go to uh, the Father. And so that you can see there from the Scriptures, and there's several other ones we could use with regard to the Scriptures there, uh, but with respect to them not being the same, uh, you can see those in the, uh, the Scriptures or the, the things here. Um, and I think I flipped the, the discussion. Really, the Father is not the Son, Matthew 17, which is what we talked about. He, is, he was pleased with His Son. Father is not the Spirit, uh, because you see there with regard to John 14, uh, 5 through 6, the fact that the Spirit was going to be sent uh, from the Father. So I think you can see it here, and there's several different other scriptures we could probably point out with regard to the idea that there are some negative characteristics negating, I guess, that they are the exact same uh, because they are different in some ways. They are different in some of their uh, functionality. They are different in some of the things that you have seen historically that they have done. And even ways that we are told that they operate even today. That they are distinctively different personalities uh, with regard to uh, the Godhead. I hope that triangle helps you a little bit, but it helps my mind a little bit uh, going through it. Names. There are certain names throughout the centuries that have uh, been used to describe the Godhead. And as we finish up class this morning, I want to at least mention the three different names that we see here in the Scriptures. Uh, or not in the, really not in the Scriptures, but you see in the world around us. I've already mentioned one, the Trinity. Uh, the idea of the triune. Uh, the word Trinity is one that, uh, the word that comes from the Latin word, uh, which means um, uh, the number three or the triad. Uh, it's a Latin word, Trinitas, 
And um, the word Trinity is never actually found in the Bible, but it does, I believe, accurately describe the biblical composition of God as you think about it, uh, much like what we refer to as being the Godhead. Uh, the authoritativeness comes from the idea of the head part of that word, if you kind of start breaking down the word. And, and so it's the idea there that, that uh, God has got this authoritative nature and there is a plurality. The Trinity is in the same way, uh, usually referred to um, as the, the Trinity or the triune or um, it, there's a Greek word that is similar to this trinitas. Uh, if, I don't want to get into language, linguistics, but uh, Latin and Greek kind of have similar words, you know, that kind of define things, kind of like we would have a word that's similar to the Spanish word. You know, we have similar definitions of that. Uh, well, in the Greek, the Greek word that is similar to the, the Latin word for trinity is a Greek word called trios. Uh, which obviously you would kind of see the, uh, the tree. The, the three is obviously a part of that. And the Greek word trios, of course, means a set of three or the number three. And so you would have this set of three mentioned. And in fact, uh, the first time that it's mentioned about God would have been in the, some of the early uh, church writers. Uh, Theophilus of Antioch was the first Christian to use this to refer to, um, to God uh, back in about, I think, 170 A.D., and uh, he compares the idea there of, of God being composed of God, his word, and his wisdom. Is the, the, the three things he kind of enumerates there for this trios of God. And so the, the Trinity is, is a word you will hear used. It would be synonymous with the word Godhead that we usually use, or it should be a synonymous, same meaning, same principles. And I believe a very similar uh, biblical uh, terminology to be able to be used. Uh, the word Trinity is not a, a unbiblical necessarily term because it is deeply conveyed in the scriptures with regard to the three beings of God. Uh, the divine family is one you may read and come across. It's not as, um, it's not as common as Trinity, of course. Uh, the divine family to me, and some of them even mention uh, being the holy family, you may see that as well, but it, it tends to evoke more of an emotional or intimate union in the relationship of the Godhead, I've, you know, I looked at some articles and read about some where they're trying to compare the Godhead to the familial relationship between a man and woman, and they kind of throw out these. I, I think you're getting too basic and almost too base with regard to the descriptions here. Uh, but there is an intimate relationship. There's no doubt with regard to the intimate relationship that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have with each other. We see that intimate relationship unfurl in the scripture with regard to his relationship to son, right? You see the father specifically saying, as we just said a minute ago, Matthew 17, other passages that he is very, that he loves his son. He's well pleased with his son. You see the, the emotional relationship that Christ has with the father uh, as, as you see his ministry um, unfold in the scriptures, especially in the gospel accounts. And you see how he's got this emotional connection with the father. He goes and he takes time away, right? His recreation is to, to go away and to pray and to communicate with his father. And you see that. And you see in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's, he's there and sweat drops appear as though blood. And, and what, what, what was he doing? Well, he was having this emotional pleading with his father. And so you see an intimate relationship kind of as the, the scriptures go forth. You see in the book of Acts, you see the Holy Spirit come into play. And you see the connection that the Holy Spirit really has. Not just from Christ saying that the Spirit's going to be sent. You see that connection in the gospel accounts as he's talking to his apostles. But you see the intimacy 
that the Holy Spirit has with regard to God the Father as He is sent on His behalf to convey the words and to help inspire uh, those to preach and to teach the Word of God, to give the miraculous gifts in the first century so that individuals will be able to confirm that what they are preaching is indeed the truth sent by God. So you see an intimate relationship there. They are closely connected. And so the divine family or the holy family, if it's used, you may just have a little bit of a, I would, I would have a little bit of a caution light when you see that because you want to dig a little deeper to see exactly what are they saying and does it jive with the biblical principles. There are biblical principles that would undergird and would, would show that this would be a proper definition or a proper use possibly in describing the relationship. However, I would probably have a little concern if you do see it in an article because you want to make sure that what's being said there is not going too sensational or emotional. The third term that usually is used with regard to the Godhead is the deity. You ever heard that? Deity. And so deity, of course, is usually used in two different ways. One, it is just descriptive of saying that, that Christ is deity. And you see that as being a term used commonly to, to talk about the, the relation, I mean, the, um, the divine nature that, uh, that, that Christ has. And of course, when you talk about the deity in the plural sense here is that the fact that there is a concept of deity that the individual, that these persons are um, eternal or immortal. And as I said before, some translations, the word and, and is used in Colossians 2.9 for the Godhead there in the New American Standard and the ESV. Uh, we're going to pick up here next week and move on in.